Welcome to Genuine Life Recovery. We're here to help you and your loved ones overcome addictions and other addiction-related mental health challenges. In this show, we dive into the physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual aspects of addiction, mental health, recovery, family dynamics, codependency, and more. You can listen on your favorite app or at jodystevens.org. Genuine Life Recovery is made possible by great friends like Joshua's Heart in memory of Joshua Brent Moore, bringing hope, love, and awareness to those afflicted by addiction online at joshesheart.org and Jody Stevens Productions for commercial voiceover, narration, production, MC, and public speaking online at jodystevens.org. Hey friends, welcome back. I'm Jody Stevens and I am joined by Betsy Byler and I'm so excited Betsy is joining us today. Betsy has a lot of experience in addictions counseling, in overall therapeutic counseling. Basically, she has lots of initials behind her name, lots of licenses, but essentially Betsy is a mental health counselor. I know I read on your bio, Betsy, that one time you were also a clinical director for a treatment center, also an addiction counselor, host of the All Things Substance podcast, which makes you a wonderful guest for this program. So, and you can find her at BetsyByler.com. And that's Betsy with a Y and then the last name B-Y-L-E-R.com. So Betsy, hope I got all that right. And thanks for hanging out and joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. And yep, you got it just right. So where are you in the world? So I live right now in Northwest Wisconsin on Lake Superior. I'm originally from Chicago. So living in this kind of small, more rural area has been a wonderful shift but really different from what I normally experienced. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine, I would imagine. So yeah, I grew up in Alaska, so, and right now I'm in Reno and um, we're getting a lot of snow, which is fine by me, but (laughs) it's been quite a winter. We are about two hours south of Canada and it's, I think we have four feet on the the ground right now. (laughs) Okay, yeah, so a little bit. That's pretty, it's pretty normal, although it's a little heavy. Uh, we'll have winter in, until probably May up here. And yeah. uh, I, the snow is fine. I just don't, uh, I don't care for having to go out in it. But I work from home, so that makes it a lot easier and it can be really pretty. Yeah, other than the occasional, it's time to shovel the driveway. So one of your main specialties is training therapists in how to address and treat substance use. So I love this. I also want to hear your personal story, but just kind of briefly chat about what led you to want to train therapists in addiction, substance use disorder. In other words, train therapists and counselors to treat people struggling with addictions. I am an addict in recovery, and I've been sober for a long time. And when I went to become a therapist, I found out that we didn't actually get training in our core programs about substance use. It wasn't something that was included as part of, I don't know, the the main things that we learn. And mm-hmm. when I got out of grad school, I realized that I needed a lot more information, even though even though I am an addict in recovery, I didn't, when I quit using, I didn't have that phrase. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know to call myself an addict. I just knew that I was using and things were bad and I needed to stop. Later on in my practice, I was realizing this incredible lack of information. 
what I found out as I went on in my career is that most therapists, 99% of them, 98% don't have it and they don't know it and they avoid working with addiction actually. A lot of folks would believe that it's not our role, that it's not the mental health therapist's role to work with substance use. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but it's not accurate. It's just that because we weren't taught it, it feels like, well, then it must not be in our wheelhouse. And what I know about addiction is that it hits everyone in whether it's family or friends or personal, and that therapists in order to treat the whole person really do need to know. So when I became a clinical supervisor and then later a director, I had staff working for me who didn't have the skills that they needed in order to work with that population. And because we had a treatment center for chemical dependency, I needed them to be able to take these clients. And so that was sort of the beginning of out of necessity needing to make sure that my staff felt competent and were able to work with that population. Because as we know, most folks who have struggled with addiction have underlying mental health issues that usually Mm -hmm. predate the substance. And so that's where it started. And it became part of my job to create the team that I needed Because finding duly licensed folks who are, and when I say duly licensed, I mean they're both mental health and substance use, that's kind of rare. It's not a commonality, and it's it's harder to find them than it is to create them. So that became my goal. That's awesome. Yeah, and we have that that at our center, too, where we have a lot of substance use counselors. And then next door, we have um, some counselors that deal with a co-occurring, and some of them are are licensed in chemical dependency or whatever, and and others aren't. And so you're right. And and so the struggle to try to find people is super difficult, because then as substance abuse counselors, we can't actually treat the other issues. And so it's, it's, pretty complicated. And then because we do methadone and stuff like that, um, the, I'm finding too that, that medical doctors and things are not trained in addiction either. So do you think that's changing a, a little bit? I think it's going to be a while. And yeah. part of that is that for family med, that's just your average doctor. They have mm-hmm. a class, I think they take six weeks and and maybe more, but it, it's not a lot in mental health. And that's just mental health. That's not substance use. And so I think substance use is even further behind. I recall um, probably about 10 years ago getting a call from a local clinic from the project, I'm sorry, the clinic manager, demanding more psychiatry time. And I'm like, "Um, I can't create (laughs) psychiatrists for you. Family medicine's going to have to learn how to do basic mental health. They just are. And they have. I mean, I think around the nation for us in the United States, they have become comfortable dealing with sort of a frontline level of medication, really basic garden variety stuff. But substance use is even further back. And the issue there for substance use is that if you ask people if they were in trouble or needed help, who would they talk to? Almost always they say their doctor. And the doctors don't necessarily know all of the nuance of what does this person need 
and the levels of intervention and treatment. And I don't really expect them to because they haven't learned it. But it is a huge yeah. gap. And unless you get a doctor or a provider that is knowledgeable, that is going to change what their recommendation is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that they are clueless because they're not. Certainly, they learn on the job. They pick things up. It's just that the formal training, I just don't know that it's there. And I don't know that it's going to be there for kind of a while because I think mental yeah. health will be there first. And it's so hard, too, because there's so much. I mean, if you're a doctor, all the medical stuff you have to learn. If you're a psychiatrist, all the mental health you have to learn. If you're a psychologist or a therapist like yourself, all the DSM stuff you have to learn. And then the addiction piece. So it's it's just a lot. It is. There's a lot of different types of information that mm-hmm. I think it's just hard to know all of that at one time. And I feel for the general so the general practitioner kind of job where you have to have wide breadth of knowledge that isn't necessarily super deep but it has to be deep enough that you're able to catch things and so I I do feel for that that it is difficult to know and to keep up with all of that when there's just client you know client after client after client for them and their appointments are short and the powers that be want need more visits in a day and it can be really difficult to be one of those providers yeah yeah well again i love what you're doing i'd like to hear your story of recovery as well kind of the the where were you then (laughs) as they say in recovery what happened and where are you now so for me i recognize addict behavior very early in my life and Of course, it wasn't substances when I was younger, younger. And Mm -hmm. by that, I mean pre-high school because it was more this all or nothing kind of behavior. I grew up in a family um, with where my sister was very shy and reserved and two introverted parents. And I was the one who was loud and out there and busy, my mom would say. And so I just always wanted to do things and whatever I wanted, I wanted now and I wanted it to be (laughs) whatever it was. And my mom was encouraging of my spirit and my energy, even though that wasn't how she was. But those behaviors, as I look back, that was pre-existing to the substance use. Mm -hmm. It set me up a bit in that way and that's not necessarily fate right but it's risk and we have some addiction in our family not a ton but some and I really feel like I can see the difference between my sister and I who she tried drugs and alcohol and didn't like it whereas for me I felt like I had found the answer to life God and everything yeah so for me uh it was Middle school was a difficult time because of some medical trauma. I had broken my hip when I was 11 and Mm. had surgery all three years of middle school and was on crutches for six months each year. It was just a fact of life for me. So at the time, it didn't seem hard. But as a middle schooler and as I look back, that absolutely affected lots of things. I stopped playing sports 
and had a lot of doctor's appointments and physical therapy and limitations. And it really changed the trajectory of that time in my life. And that was also when my parents, uh, my parents got divorced and it was an amicable divorce. My parents were not in a nasty custody battle, which was nice. And, but it was uncommon at that time and with my friend group for someone to be going through this. So I didn't really have a model of what this was supposed to look like. And it just was a difficult time. The adjustment, the adjustment to my dad having another partner, to uh, eventually having another sibling. And all of that together was just creating complications for me emotionally. And because I felt the way I felt and experienced feelings deeply, I didn't express them well. I had a pretty short mm-hmm. fuse, was pretty irritable, and it was, I think, difficult for my mom to get a hold of me and to manage that without having a partner there to help tag team a little bit because mm-hmm. I was a little terrorist and you can't negotiate with a terrorist and she did <laughs> often and I understand it as a mom I get that and it's really I think difficult for single parents to kind of hold the boundaries they need to and the rules just because with a kid like me she'd tell me I was grounded um, I would tell her to f off and then I'd leave and that was what do you do about that do you physically try to haul a child in and and there was no way that she would have been capable of doing that and so that kind of just started this I guess rebellious behavior for me and I think I got away with some of it as well because of the medical trauma I think she felt badly as I think any parent would about the missed opportunities and so I got away with stuff So as I'm moving into high school, I have an older sister, and so I knew some older kids and hung around with them, not so much with my sister, but with kids in her grade, and started experimenting with alcohol. I had started smoking cigarettes when I was like 11, Mm -hmm. and so it, it really amped up once I got into high school. And then when I first started trying drugs, it was immediate for me. It was a moment of, oh my God, this is the thing that I have been looking for. And it was the moment that I first tried anything other than alcohol where I was like, yep, this is it for me. And I literally started using and stayed using for three years every day, Mm. which is not super common. Most of the time, there's a little more lead up with experimentation for teenagers. There's a a trajectory of how things progress. But that was not the way it was for me. And I always wanted to push the envelope and do it faster and harder and more. And my mantra, of course, was just more and yes. (laughs) So the, the problem there is it sounds like it could be harmless, but... There are a number of things that cause issues during that time, and that is that I started being around folks who were really dangerous and Mm, not great people. So not just high school kids. This was pretty serious drug dealers, 
lots of people who were in a very different life than me. We lived in the suburbs of Chicago. And so in order to find bigger and more drugs and more access, we'd be going to other towns that are closer to the city where there were just things that as a mom, I would never want my kids to be in a room. And I recall sitting in a room once, overalls, flannel, t- you know, flannel shirt, because remember, this is the grunge years, Birkenstocks, yeah. <laughs> and sitting in a room with guns and drugs, and yeah. the main guy has a couple of women hanging on him. And I remember being Mm -hmm. 16 and thinking, whoa, what am I doing here? And realizing that I was probably in some danger. As I think about it as an adult, of course, I had absolutely no idea how much danger I was in. And there were times during the years I was using where I definitely witnessed things, experienced things, traumatic things that increased my use exponentially that I couldn't share that life with anyone else no other no adults just the few friends that were with me and so whatever I was feeling before I started using it just compounded and all of the experiences and things just stacked and it meant that I couldn't tolerate being sober So I'm trying to lead this life where I'm a high school student trying to stay out of somewhat of trouble with my mom. I mean, I wasn't a total, I don't know, I wasn't totally out of hand, but trying to keep her from knowing what's happening and trying to at least maintain some kind of presence in school to keep my dad off my back and my mom off my back. As I had an expectation of going to school and getting decent-ish grades, I was in advanced placement classes. It was expected that I would go to college. So it, it was really this very double life. And in my using life, things were insane. And so as progression happens, which it does no matter what we think, it wasn't harmless. It certainly was becoming a thing. And I was using multiple times a day, every day. And it It just wasn't slowing down or stopping. So for me, the process of getting sober was not immediate, which for most folks, it's not. Most of us don't have a moment and then we never use again. We have a series of moments where we realize that this is bad. I don't like this. I I have to stop. I got to cut down. I got to do better. And so I had those moments. I had... I had one of those moments when I was getting arrested and getting charged with possession with intent or losing my job, losing my boyfriend at the time, which was really important to me. And there were these moments where I was aware that friends that I had had since grade school no longer wanted to talk to me because of the way I was living my life because I just didn't have anything in common with them. And so there were these moments where I had it dawning on me that perhaps I had gotten a little out of hand and that I should cut back. I don't know that I realized at the time, although I do now, that my efforts to cut back didn't work and usually Mm -hmm. would last a few days. And then I would decide, nope, you know, I need to use more. And 
And so it was those bigger moments like getting arrested or things like that, that started chipping away at this idea that this was just a fine way to live my life. So I had moments of sobriety after those three years would have even a couple months pulled together and not be using and cleared my head and was feeling okay. But there was still a lot of emotional stuff, a lot of trauma that hadn't been dealt with that I wasn't prepared to figure out how to manage. And so that would lead me back into using. I did get sober really early. I was almost 19 and in college and had been using again and trying to keep it from affecting school. Of course, that doesn't work. Really, it was a moment by myself driving around in my car at three or four in the morning and just thinking and Mm -hmm. talking out loud and driving around for hours and hours and realizing that any way to have a future, it couldn't involve drugs because I couldn't control it that I would say I would just do it this way or that way and it couldn't and it wouldn't stay there. And so I quit using drugs in 1996 and I didn't drink until I didn't I didn't drink very often and maybe once or twice a year until I turned 21 and then that was even I don't know five times a year maybe and I just mm-hmm. didn't because alcohol was never my go-to. It was a stopgap for when I couldn't find what I wanted. But what I realized was that every time I drank, I did stupid things, things (laughs) that were not normal, that normal drinkers don't drive drunk. And normal drinkers don't do other things that they end up regretting. And they don't wake up in the morning thinking, what happened? I mean, yes, there are folks that do that, and certainly in college, but it was just one of those things that it wasn't once in a while when I drank. It was every time. I didn't understand the let's have one drink, let's have a couple, Mm -hmm. because that doesn't make sense in my brain. Yeah. For me, there's no point in that. Why would I do that if I'm not going to get drunk? And so I realized that that's not normal either, that people who drink normally are just fine having a glass or two of something. And so I realized that I was never going to have a normal relationship with alcohol and that it would be better for me if I just stopped drinking totally. And so I did. And the last time I drank was March of 2004. And it was, for me, It that was not part of my... I wasn't an alcoholic, but I could see it heading in that direction. And so the reason I don't drink today is because I know that my body and brain don't respond normally to substances and that the addict behavior that I saw in myself as a child is still alive and active in me now. I can hear it when it's like, oh, just do this. And I And it's not a huge pull, but I'm aware it's there. It's part of who I am. I just use my powers for good these days. And uh, some of the, you know, the charismatic qualities that I had when I was using, well, I use those differently now. And 
it's just been a, a lesson in learning how to manage those things in my body and in my brain and turning that towards pro-social things and behaviors. And certainly all these years later, it's not challenging like it was in the beginning. I do recall being resigned that I would always want to get high, that I would always want to party. I thought that that's what was going to happen and that that was just going to be my cross to bear, so to speak. I'm happy to say that that isn't the case and that it does fade, thank God. We are able to recover and move to a place where it's not a struggle daily. I think in the beginning when people are getting sober, it's very difficult to imagine that that's a possibility to where someday your substance of choice isn't going to plague you all the time. I think some Mm -hmm. folks then they want to try it and they want to see if they can use normally because that's the dream of every addict and alcoholic is that we could be normal. And then for me, I just had to accept that that is not who I am and it's not going to be. And if I stay away from it, then I'm good. But it is not a door that I'm able or want to open. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I relate to so much of your story. You know, there ought to be like a coping skills for teens and kids and stuff like that. You know, they just don't teach that. They don't teach you healthier ways to deal with emotions. It's still not something talked about. And I feel like it should be. But I just relate to so much of what you were saying not really dealing with feelings and stuff at, at an early age in families where there tends to be addiction and stuff. That seems to be very common. You had some early trauma, which I could relate to. You had some genetic stuff, which I could relate to. Then you had some trauma on top of the trauma from from using and being in, in crazy situations. So you kind of had a, a little bit of the whole gamut. One of the things that you said that I think is so common, and I wish they would teach this to younger people, is when you try the substance and you feel like you have arrived, that's a huge risk factor. I know for me, it didn't matter what I tried. I loved it. Like, I mean, just bring it on. And I have a friend who... She's been sober a long time, too, but almost died from the oxy and stuff like that. And and it was the same thing for her. Like, she would take that pill and she felt like, I have arrived. This is it. Whereas other people would be like, oh, I'm tired, you know. And she did have one doctor say that to her. Like, if you take this and you feel like you have arrived, there's a good chance you have a problem. I am a downer kind of girl. And so for Uh me, opiates and sleeping pills and that kind of thing were 100% my jam. And if I had not gotten sober, I absolutely would have been a heroin addict. And I know that for a lot of folks, they say things like, oh, I would never or I would never use a needle. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I would have been on that train. There would have been no Mm -hmm. stopping it for me because the withdrawal from that would have would have made it unbearable for me to stay away. And I was so accustomed to numbing out any discomfort that there's no chance that I would have put up with it for more than a day or two. So I have a for me I'm very grateful that I got sober as early as I did because I know where it would have gone and there's no reason that I got to get sober early versus someone else. It's a series of circumstances. I'm not any smarter yeah. or more capable. I think there were probably things that helped that 
I had supportive friends and I had resources in terms of enough money to support myself and I had um, I had access to education. So there were things that I had that helped keep me from sinking all the way in where I think that for folks who don't have those resources and have multiple experiences and situations that make it more difficult for them to get what they need. I think that's the only difference. And I am grateful because of my attitude. I didn't have any self-preservation really. And so Mm -hmm. I I just know that I would have been absolutely in that. Mm, Yeah. And it's a scary time with fentanyl. You know, we have people coming in They're like, oh, I've been using fentanyl for three months and I've already overdosed. And they don't know what they're getting. So one time they'll get it and it's super strong and they practically overdose. And then the next time they get it and they don't. I mean, it's it's all over the place. It's super scary. Uh, Betsy, did you go through recovery? Like, did you go, did you do like an inpatient or an outpatient or anything like that? I didn't. And part of that was I didn't have the language for that. Mm -hmm. It was... For me, realizing that I was getting out of control and that every time I started using again, I meant it to be social and it wasn't. And I just knew that I couldn't do it. And so it really was a lot of white knuckling. I ended up Mm -hmm. figuring out that, well, I can't hang out with these people because I can't be around them without using. And I need to be busy because my brain is trying to convince me that we should do this. So I better get busy and I better do things and I better make sure I'm being faithful to going to class and getting my homework done. And uh, there was some spiritual components for me as I'd always kind of been a a spiritually directed person, I guess. And Mm -hmm. so I really developed a plan of recovery, but I didn't know that that's what it was. And of course, I was still drinking, um, but not like I said, not often. And after I would have like a a night where I went out and was drinking and did something stupid, then I would have months of not touching it because I was like, oh, okay, nope, we're not doing that. But I didn't know about the language of recovery until much later. And by then I had gotten past several years of no drugs and drinking a handful of times a year. And so it It worked for me that way because I had also completely shifted who I was around. And I I just talked about this on my podcast last week about there was a moment in, I think I was a senior in college and I was going to Michigan State, which is a a really big party school. And my roommates were totally normal drinkers in the sense of normal college age drinkers. Uh, And so Mm -hmm. they would drink on weekends and... They knew that I didn't and they were cool with that. But I remember sitting in my living room and having one of my roommates say, I just can't imagine you using drugs. I just can't. And I was like, really? And it was such a weird (laughs) moment because when I would go home to my hometown, I remember being out and we used to all go to Denny's all the time because you could smoke in Denny's and having someone mention that I they thought I was having a good night sort of this wink wink nudge nudge because apparently my eyes were looking jacked up and the person thought I was high and I'm like I'm not high and they're like come on you're always high and I was 
Like, oh my gosh, I'm not high. And they couldn't imagine me not being jacked up. And so it was realizing when I was in college that I had reached this point that I had gotten so far past that time period that the people in my life had no concept or frame for me as the person I had been who was dealing and lying and stealing and using and doing all the things that happen when you're a drug addict that they could not mesh those two pieces of me together. And that's when I was like, oh, huh. And I don't miss that. That's weird. Yeah. And it was sort of just that weird moment. So for me, that's what recovery and early recovery looked like was getting completely out of that world, getting immersed in a different world. And I mean, I did move. I lived in a completely different area. Not that the geographical move was the thing, because I actually moved away from home. I went to four different undergrads. So this was my fourth college by the time this is happening. So for me, it wasn't just the geographical move, but it was my complete separation from that community that I had been using with. And that's how I I didn't end up in treatment. I think I probably could have used it and it would have been helpful for me to have some language around what was happening to me and how to manage it. Um, But I just I just had to figure it out for myself. Sounds like you did what I did as well. You kind of stumbled on a lot of the healing techniques, some of the cognitive behavioral therapy techniques by yourself. I did that too. I had underlying anxiety and panic attacks. And I can remember smoking, taking so many bong hits one time in college that I had a massive like three-hour panic attack. And I, I I started diverting and playing guitar and doing all these mental exercises and the panic attack went away. And that's when I started to learn about some of the different techniques. But I, I stumbled on all this stuff on my own as well. And I, I did eventually end up getting sober, getting a sponsor. But what was so interesting, Bessie, was it was a 10-year journey of I'd been sober for 10 years before I really started to un- uncover so much of the dysfunctional coping skills, the codependency, the fear, the self-esteem, everything that was underneath it. And so I love what you're doing and what I'm trying to do, which is to kind of help people figure this stuff out faster, because you can figure it out a little bit faster with the right tools, you know? I totally agree. And I, I think <laughs> it was sort of the same for me when I didn't when I just had to keep figuring out like, oh, if I do this, I don't feel so bad. And, oh, this makes this yeah. easier. But I didn't have any language for even that I had had anxiety or depression as a teenager. I didn't I didn't really understand that until I was in graduate school to become a therapist. Mm-hmm. And part of that was just coping, right, of I can't deal with these feelings. I can't use in order to deal with these feelings. So I need to wall them off. Because they're there and I can't handle that. So it doesn't exist. And that was effective for me uh, for a while. And when I started training to become a therapist, doing that is sort of like being in therapy every day with a bunch of other therapists. Yeah. And so you're in a room with 30 other people who are trying to become therapists And you make a statement and everyone goes, hmm. And you're like, you know what? (laughs) You can stuff your hmm. And you couldn't kind of get away from the reflecting on yourself of, oh, that sounds like me. Oh, that's what was happening to me. 
And so it, that was a huge turning point for me was in graduate school and doing my own therapy again at that time. Not that I hadn't had therapy. I had a ton of therapy in high school. I had nine different therapists. Uh, and oh my God, it wasn't until the ninth one that I ended up even talking to her. Uh, because again, I was extremely oppositional. I was not a sweet, calm, uh, compliant kid. And so getting a therapist who could handle me, that was a trick. Was there something about those earlier therapeutic experiences that, or, you know, that, that you learned now in, in dealing with people kind of like what works, what doesn't work, et cetera? And obviously we're all different. So what works for some work, you know, doesn't work for others. You know, my mom, while she had difficult time, a difficult time reining me in, she still always tried. She was trying very hard to keep me alive because she recognized what, how dangerous I was to myself. And so she was a believer in therapy and was continually taking me to therapists and blackmailed me into therapy, actually. <laughs> um, and that was a simple of, I know you're using with these people, and if you don't go to therapy, I'm going to call their parents. And I'm not a snitch. <laughs> you know, that was a, very important to me back in the day. To not be a snitch. Yeah. And um, and so I had no choice. She had proof because there wasn't texting and we were writing notes to each other and we were dumb enough to put things in writing. And so she had yeah. concrete evidence that these people were using drugs with me. And so she blackmailed me into therapy. And it wasn't until I met the ninth therapist, whose name is Betsy. And it's Always a little interesting because there aren't a lot of Betsy's running around in the world. And yeah. so when I met her, I don't remember what she said in the first session. But I remember thinking, okay, maybe I can talk to her. But it was the way that she was with me that I felt seen and heard and respected. And it allowed me to share some of what was happening in my life at the time. And I do remember sitting in her office, having this moment of clarity of thinking, you know, someday I'm going to get sober, even though I didn't have that phrase. And I could do this job. I could seek, I could work with kids like me. And that is what I do. I mean, I am a trauma therapist. Yeah. So I'm specifically a trauma therapist working with EMDR and other modalities and I am I see high school kids and up all the way through some of my clients that are in their 60s but my specialty one of them is working with teenagers that are using drugs those are my favorite they usually hate everybody <laughs> and they don't hate me um, I think it is that they recognize that I see them as a person and not a kid and I do have to yeah. stop my mom response on occasion inside because as I look at these teenagers that I work with I do get that sense of oh my god you did what because they have far more access to things than I did it was much harder to find mm -hmm. drugs to get hooked up with people that were further into the lifestyle to hide things even like they have so much more access than I did we had to really work at it 
I mean, we didn't have cell phones. We had home phones, you know. So in order to, like, make (laughs) Mm -hmm. connections, like, there was some struggle there. And you couldn't be buying drugs at 3 a.m. with your home phone. And uh, so it was it was a more challenging. I'm not saying it didn't it didn't stop us, certainly, but it was challenging. And so as I work with kids now, reminding myself that they feel old enough to do these things. They internally feel like they should be able to make their own choices and that they know everything that they need to know and that they cannot know that they don't. And it wasn't for me until I was probably in my late 20s that I started realizing that I felt that same way when I was their age and that I had no idea what I was doing and that if I didn't know what I was doing but thought I did, I wonder if people older than my late 20s felt the same way. I wonder if they look at their late 20s and think, man, I was so dumb. I had no idea what I was doing. And I had enough wisdom to realize, yeah, I bet that happens. Like, I bet that happens. I bet that what I feel like I know now is very different from what I'm going to know in 10 years and 20 years from now. So I just think approaching kids, teenagers and young adults, uh, both of them in a way that is respectful of their experience and of how they feel and of their autonomy and the choices they make, it goes a long way because that's their beef with people is that people treat them like they're dumb or that they don't know. And even if internally I'm like, wow, that's a terrible choice. I have to find a way to express that, leaning on the relationship that I have built so that they can hear me. Because very often I am the only adult in their life that they feel like can be neutral because I don't have a vested interest in whether they go to college or whether they graduate or what they do on the day-to-day that I don't have skin in that game, so to speak and that I can be more neutral and so they'll talk to me about things. And I find that that cuts down a lot of the resistance that I get from people in that age range. Wow, yeah, well, you know from personal experience, you know how to get through to that age group. That is awesome. Well, this has been part one with Betsy Byler. Betsy, thank you so much for sharing your personal story of recovery. In part two with Betsy, we're going to talk about an assessment. What is that? What is it like? So like what happens when someone goes in for addiction or substance use disorder treatment? We'll talk about the difference between substance use disorder assessment versus a mental health assessment. We'll talk about aftercare and what that is. Also, what is a co-occurring disorder? How is that assessed in relation to treatment? And Betsy's going to have some advice for people with family members struggling with someone in their family struggling with addiction. We'll talk about the work that she is doing. You can find Betsy at BetsyBeiler.com. That's Betsy with a Y, B-Y-L-E-R.com, BetsyBeiler.com. Thanks for listening, friends, and don't miss part two. Thank you so much, friends, for listening to Genuine Life Recovery, playing on your favorite app or on my website at jodystevens.org. It's J-O-D-I-E-S-T-E-V-E-N-S, jodystevens.org. There you can check out my podcast, blog, recovery coaching info, speaking, and more. Check it out.